Good afternoon and welcome to Devising Defenses to One of Your Top Security Threats, Business Associate Imposter Emails, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Proofpoint. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We are looking forward to your participation. We uh, encourage you to send your questions or comments in at any time in the Q&A box. And we may do an audience, uh, one question audience poll, depending on time. Nice way to view the screen. Click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. You can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you want, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes on our main panel discussion featuring Steve Dunkel, CISO with Geisinger Health System, Christopher Friends, CISO and AVP of IT Security with Mount Sinai South Nassau, and Ryan Witt, Managing Director for Healthcare with Proofpoint. And then we'll have our audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. This is an important topic and lots to discuss. Um, Steve, let's start with you, off with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure, Anthony. Uh, great to be here this morning. Uh, Geisinger is located in central Pennsylvania, uh, Danville, Pennsylvania. Uh, we are one of the largest rural health care systems in the country. We have uh, 12 hospitals. It's an integrated healthcare system with a healthcare plan, research uh, division, obviously clinical operations, school of medicine, uh, fairly large life flight uh, component of the organization. Uh, very much into innovation and again, I mentioned research, genomics, and things like that. So uh, challenges of an in integrated healthcare system. Very good. Thanks, Steve. Chris? Sure. Mount Sinai South Nassau is a community hospital located in uh, South Nassau, Long Island. And basically, um, we're one large hospital and well as a bunch of satellite uh, facilities. And we serve the Long Island area. Very good. Thanks, Chris. Ryan? Uh, Proofpoint is a security firm focused on how people work and how they're attacked. Um, very, that's our tunnel vision focuses on protecting people and how they how they work, how they're attacked. My role is I'm the managing director of the healthcare industry practice, so I'm trying to make sure everything we're doing from a Proofpoint standpoint is best serving the healthcare industry. Very good, thank you, Ryan. All right, let's get into it. Chris, let's start with you. Uh, dealing with COVID has required health systems supply chain staff to deal with dozens more vendors, many of them new. Have you seen this present increased security risks? And if so, how have the attacks presented themselves and what have you done to combat it? I definitely think the uh, changes with COVID have increased the security risk for healthcare of all different forms. Uh, both in terms of a vendor supply chain, it's um, in terms of the changes hospitals had to make to accommodate a lot of the vendors and a lot of the systems they brought live. Um, and I think it presents a, a variety of problems for hospitals. Uh, for example, a lot of hospitals rush to roll out telehealth, they rush to roll out remote access. So there's not only introduced new vendors, but the speed at which a lot of hospitals roll these technologies out also meant that for many organizations, a lot of the common security checks and controls that they would have put in to surround these technologies were not necessarily put in in a timely manner. So I think hospitals have 
to do a lot now to actually go back and look at what was done and make sure it was done to industry standard best practices and and anything that wasn't and was rushed out begin to correct it. But um, just in general too, just the number of new vendors popping up, the number of scams has also popped up accordingly um, to address a lot of the COVID concerns. So for example, early on in the COVID attacks, we saw fraudulent emails pretending to be from the CDC and from other government enterprises. We saw a lot of um, you know fraud due to fake vendors trying to sell masks and other stuff. So fraud um, related to new vendors has definitely been a problem. And the fact that a lot of uh, new vendors had to be dealt with did enhance the problem because it, you basically had to decide which vendors were legitimate and which were not. And you might not necessarily have the time to vet them as completely as you would have in a pre-COVID situation. But what did you try and do about that? Well, I mean, as, as things were happening, um, did you try and develop policies and procedures to where security uh, would have its sort of its voice heard or get proper treatment? Um, you mentioned going back. So uh, we know it wasn't uh, perfect. We, it wasn't how you would have loved it to be. Um, but did you, I would imagine you put a few things in place and now you have the process of going back. So was it sort of both? Let's do the best we can. Let's get something going now and then we'll go back and fix. I think it varies from organization to organization. And I think the more investment a lot of organizations had in having a mature security program up front, the better they were able to deal with the pandemic. Um, so for example, like the hospital is that previously that had a heavy investment in zero trust technologies. So our entire virtual desktop infrastructure was a fully zero trust and everything else. And when it came time to scale remote access, we were able to add desktops, but still keep that level of security because the legwork had been done up front. So I think for a lot of organizations that had processes and procedures for dealing with this in place already, they were kind of able to scale that and successfully do it. I think it presented more of a challenge for organizations who were a little less prepared, um, who may not have been doing this kind of vetting or have those kind of controls in place ahead of time. And then having to scale that um, was even more challenging because they weren't really prepared to start with. So, but it, the answer really is going to vary from health system to health system. But I do think the ones that put the legwork in up front were better able to deal with the situation as it arose. Steve, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I completely agree with Chris. I, I, reflecting back on that time, and it was definitely trying for all of us. Um, Geisinger, we were fortunate. I mentioned earlier, we were very big in innovation. So we have a pretty hefty flow workload-wise of vendors uh, that are coming into the organization as new projects get in, on, in place for innovation. Obviously, when COVID came in, overnight we shifted to uh, looking at vendors that were needed immediately for uh, to support COVID. And it, even then, to Chris's point, I mean, it was just excessive. Uh, and the amount of risk was very concerning. You add on top of that, sending all employees to work from home, uh, you know, bringing the risk with that. So there was a lot of long hours put in doing security risk assessments by phone in some cases, or making risk tolerance decisions to say, in this case, we've done the best vetting we can. We've got to go forward and then continue to vet them as we, uh, you know, as we go. But it, it was a trying time. And I saw all of us in the field just dealing with the same thing. Would you say that, that 
were you did you were you able to be comfortable with the decisions or was there uh, was there a lot of stress for you a lot of point like i can't believe we're doing this but we got to do this or are you more sort of just that logical calm like okay we made the decision or does it does it stick with you as a, as a security professional sometimes like i'm just not comfortable well that's a good good point and you know from the standpoint in my mind it comes if it's patient safety then definitely i mean we're a real stickler obviously and i'm sure most organizations if not all are that way so patient safety was utmost after that became sensitivity of information and the volume and uh you know types of information and that uh that weighed in too was i comfortable no but i would argue anyone in our field uh, that is working in supply chain security that's comfortable right now those uh, let's just say that type of uh, attitude right now is not common that I know of uh, it, it truly was a risk-based process but to your point it wasn't just kind of off the cuff so to speak we'd put a process in place we'd also warned our patients day one hey we anticipate there's going to be fraud associated with so be on the lookout and, you know, watch those emails, be very careful, follow your training. And you would say there's still, there's still remediation work to be done. It's, it's still not all, you know, we're good. There's work to be done. Sure. Absolutely. You know, there's things that float to the top with us. Uh, multi-factor authentication. That's pretty much a has have to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other factors, for example, is maybe, let's say, event logging and monitoring, you know, applying the 70-30% rule that right now, 70% is better than nothing, and we're going to continue to improve that, just as one example. Very good. Ryan, what are your thoughts around what you're hearing? I mean, there is a Harvard Business Review caliber case study that could be written around how cyber criminals attacked attacked healthcare during the time of COVID. I think it was touched on a little bit earlier, um, but the lures that were used at the early stage of COVID, which I think Chris mentioned around mimicking our um, CDC or purporting to have this, you know, un, this found supply of face masks that you can make available to the health system. That approach has um, evolved as the COVID story has evolved. So uh, when you had to roll out telehealth portals, you saw attacks uh, purporting to come on. You know, these are your telehealth portals. You, you're seeing attacks, you know, fast forward to now, how do you get access to vaccine? How do you get access to the vaccine supply chain? Uh, now you're kind of seeing attacks on this, you know, this idea of a, vac- of a vaccine passport, whatever that really is and how that's going to work. You're seeing attacks there. So the bad actors there are no holds barred in terms of what they will do to try to penetrate a health system. They tend to these days focus disproportionately on the supply chain because the supply chain has a couple of unique attributes that are very interesting to them. One is those people work in vulnerable, way, vulnerable ways. They just work in a way that 
by the nature of their job, they have to interact with third parties. They have to download documents. They have to click links. They have to go on to third-party apps. So just the nature of how they work means that, that they work in a more vulnerable way. Number two is they often deal with money. So that's the, you know, the, the motivation almost always for bad actors is a monetization angle and the supply chain is dealing with money. So you have a, you have a, you have a group of people who are working in the vulnerable way, vulnerable way who are dealing with money. That means they have a significant target on their head. The last factor is if you can find a way to mimic somebody in the supply chain where there already is a degree you know, of a trusted relationship. So you already have to a degree kind of like one foot inside the, the castle walls because you already have an ongoing engagement. So that means the defenses are a little bit down. So those three factors means that the cyber criminals are really, really oriented on this sort of threat vector. Uh, and I don't think we're going to see that change anytime soon. So it's pretty tailored, right, Ryan? I mean, number one, you said it's sort of real time. The lure is going to be almost real time. They could have, or the, the bad actors could read the news that day yes. and they could be that tailored uh, yes. with the lure. They know who to go after because they can find it online. They can find, they'll find the people on LinkedIn. So they can find the people they want. They can use a real lure. They can even find vendors that you're currently working with that's out there, press releases, things like that. So you're would, talking about extremely highly tailored attacks. Yeah, I, I would I would I would frame it this way. Five years ago, we were having a lot of discussions about, say, zero-day attacks, or we had a lot of discussions around how a patch wasn't deployed somewhere and that was a vulnerability in the network. And you had cyber criminals or bad actors who went through that level of security uh, prowess and understanding of how a network architecture worked. To go find these little um, these 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 chinks in the armor, that's actually quite hard, relatively speaking. I mean, you need a level of technical expertise to be able to go train your cyber criminal bad actors, your your to go understand how LinkedIn works or Facebook works or the hierarchy of a, of a healthcare organization. You can do that in in hours or days, not weeks or months, like it takes to go learn a network architecture. So. They're using the same level of energy and attention to detail, but now they're just orienting that activity on social engineering. Well said, well said. All right, let's go to our next question. Um, we are going to start with uh, Ryan, we're gonna stick with you. What should health systems require of their legitimate suppliers and vendors so they can more easily differentiate them from cyber criminals? I mean, there's a lot of lot of answers here, and I'd be interested what what Chris and Stephen have to say. But essentially, I think at the the bedrock or the starting point, you need to try to understand who you're talking to, who you're who you're working with. You need to have some sort of means or mechanism to authenticate that the email traffic coming in to your system is coming from who it's purporting to come from. So, I think that would be a fundamental technology, and there are clearly capabilities out there. DMARC would be one of the obvious ones about how you can authenticate to say, hey, is this email coming in from the person it's allegedly coming in from? Having that set up bedrock level um, of, of capability in place, I think is instrumental in terms of, uh, in terms of um, understanding 
are solving this problem. Secondly, I would significantly focus, I think Stephen already mentioned this a little bit earlier, but training. I mean, whether your, your point of view is your, your people, your first or your last line of defense, I, however you want to frame that, but educating to them, I think to use Stephen's phrase, that there's going to be fraud involved in their engagements. So you have to kind of look at every sort of email you receive with that sort of, unfortunately, a little bit of a jaundice viewpoint that says, plan on being duped and then, you know, look at everything, you know, very, very critically as a result. And I think lastly, on that guys or on that, on that front, any email that that's emotive, or that, that pulls at your heartstrings, that tries to get you to act emotionally as opposed to rationally, you know, that should be alarm bells ringing on those sort of emails. All right, uh, Stephen, your thoughts. I think Ryan brings up a real good point. Uh, a couple of years ago, we stumbled on the idea. We've always felt that most users have an, an inherent ability to, to be suspicious, to detect things, or to be cautious. And so we started to use slides showing different weather, just using that instinct of sunny day versus off in the distance, a, a nasty looking storm blowing in. And that's how we're sort of building into our uh, training program. When you're reading your email, you have to use those same instincts. What are the tells in this email that I need to sort of automatically look for just part of doing my email? And if it looks suspicious, then the argument is it probably is. And those are the ones we want them to report or as Ryan said, I agree 100%, pick up the phone and call the person or call the organization and say, and say, did you really send me an email that says we're late on a payment or that you wanna change your bank routing information? Uh, but more importantly to that, and what worries me is when we're training and someone will say, well, I have no idea who we'd call. I have no contact. Well, that, that's a concern in its own right. Uh, so again, it's training and it's preparation. And obviously the technology and all the other things behind it, but that's a whole different conversation. Chris? I definitely agree with everything said. So rather than reiterate, I'll try to build on uh, what they said. In terms of some of the technical controls Ryan mentioned, I agree with all those, but I would say I'm also a huge fan of sandboxing as part of um, filtering incoming communications putting the attachments, putting the links through a sandbox to see if they're malicious or not. It's a great way to discover some novel malware, novel phishing attempts um, to build on the, the training aspects that both us, Steve and Ryan talked about. Uh, one thing I would add to that is I definitely agree that training is a must, but one thing I would say is don't keep doing these same phishing attacks all the time. If you're gonna use phishing tests and other stuff as part of your training, change it up every once in a while. Because what I find a lot of organizations, they're very concerned with the number trending down, which is important, but, um, a lot of them to facilitate that kind of keep doing the same kind of tests over and over again. And I think the training program loses some of its efficacy with that. So I think every once in a while, changing up the types of phishing scams you send out is a good way to keep your users on their toes and keep them prepared. Even if you take a slight hit every once in a while in terms of um, your percentage of people following for that. And the uh, last thing I would add too, is that um, one of the things that we're increasingly doing is putting more and more of our vendors and suppliers through a vendor risk management process actually before they're allowed to do business with us, 
actually taking the time to vet them, to vet some of their security posture. And I think recent events have um, really indicated that's particularly important, uh, particularly with events like uh, solar winds and other stuff. I realize it wasn't always possible with all the um, COVID suppliers because of the urgency, but um, that's something that we're increasingly doing to address those risks. Now, Chris, it sounds like from what I'm hearing, you need a complete approach, right? Because uh, you may not have a malicious link in an email. If they're asking you to send it to a different routing number, there may be nothing malicious in that. It might be spoofed that it's not coming from the person it's purporting to be coming from. But I wonder if there's even a way around that where it actually is from the person. Um, there's probably a lot of ways to, to, to scam. Technology is going to catch some of them, but it's not going to catch all of them. Is that right? Oh, that, that's definitely true. And that's why education is important, what we often call the human firewall, having someone there to actually recognize when a scam comes through. Because I've definitely seen cases where, as you mentioned, there's no links, there's no attachments. It's just uh, plain text. Um, you know, while there are also impossible impersonation filters and things like that and various spam filters you configure, there are always going to be some percentage of emails that slip through. Because if you consider about it, I mean, most organizations get thousands and thousands of uh, spam and phishing type emails um, you know, every week. And even if you have a 99% effective filter, there's still going to be some number of things that get through. And where that kind of becomes scary is um, if you consider just, let's say, a 10% click-through rate. That means if just 10 people get the email, you're up to like a 90% chance that someone clicks that you know, particular malicious link. So the statistics get scary pretty fast. And um, that's really why defense in depth is so important, not relying on a single control because a single control is always going to fail over time. If you give it long enough, something's always going to bypass that control. It's having other controls in place to uh, kind of pick up the slack when that one control fails and have a chance at uh, mitigating or preventing the attack from happening. Uh, Steve, a little more about tells, you know, uh, to use that gambling term. So, I would imagine eventually it's going to have to get to the point where there's a request for either access, meaning share share your password with me, or we got to change your password or something, right? They mm -hmm. want access or they want money. Uh, so at some point, there's going to be something like that. Um, and I would think it's usually not a reply email to an existing conversation. Are those some of the kind of tells that, that you're talking about? Yeah, it's, it, for example, if we have a vendor, if you get something from a vendor that, you know, you've had no correspondence with that vendor at all in the past 10 months. And then all of a sudden they seem to be very engaged. They want, uh, you know, send a couple emails and add some urgency to it. Those are tells we train. It's that urgency side or things out of the norm. Uh, it's, it's always better to be safe than sorry. And again, that's what, what we try to, to do is use your instinct, follow your gut. And if something, something there bothers you about it, then there's probably, there's more than likely some justification to that. That's your intelligence working for you. Ryan, any thoughts on tells? Absolutely. Um, and I would say not only are there tells, but there is research out there that can tell you, tell the health system, tell the bad actors, unfortunately, too, but who is being attacked. So not every person is created equally in the in the bad actor's eyes. So we talked about the supply chain, but there's also if if you have a, a function in your in your health system that is clinical clinical research oriented, that is a heavily attacked function. 
if you have somebody who deals in um, the pharmacy function within your health system, you have access to controlled substances. That is a heavily attacked function. So there is research, Proofpoint puts out research around telling which parts of a health system from a departmental or job function level uh, are being attacked. And then you can then build upon that to say, okay, well, what are the likely tells in these departments that you should be looking out for? And I think the, the overarching point here, I think Stephen made it a little bit earlier that we, we can't really lose, is that this ultimately can, in many cases, is a patient safety issue. Because a bad actor who breaks in, you know, through a phishing style email, worms its way into the system, can ultimately take down the health system. This is what we saw with Ryuk. You know, the Ryuk didn't, there was not like a, um, an exploit that got through the sandbox. Um, Ryuk was a, was, a, was a delayed sort of um, a payload that detonated afterwards. And that took down many health, well, I mean, took down a few health systems and caused significant patient safety issues. So, so we can't lose the connection here to say, this is not just about monetization or the stealing of, of research or controlled substances. Yes, that is definitely a, a concern. But ultimately, at a board level, this should be seen as a patient safety discussion. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the concept of overdoing it. So, something, Ryan, you were talking about, you know, you can understand the specific departments that are targeted. You can train those people. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense. It's targeted training. We're not using a scattershot approach. We don't want to waste people's time. So if we can be more targeted with our training in terms of requiring people to do this or that, that makes sense. So we're not, again, wasting people's time that don't need excessive training. We also don't want to make people so suspicious that they can't do their job, right? That they're, they, they don't want to, they're, they're frozen and they're afraid of, of making a mistake and getting fired. So there's always the balance in these kind of things. Chris, I'd like your thoughts on that. I definitely agree. It's definitely a balance. And we do risk triage to some extent because uh, we do you know, regular fishing training. We do regular fishing testing too. So we basically um, kind of risk score our individuals based on how well they do on their training. And um, you know, people who keep failing fishing <laughs> tests and stuff sorry. Like that are targeted for additional training where people who routinely pass, we um, actually will try some harder fishes, things like that for to you know, better improve them. But we do treat different people differently based on how they perform on fishing testing and um, how susceptible their particular role may be to um, encounter phishing attacks. So um, that definitely is an approach that we do. And I do agree that risk triaging um, employees that may or may not be more susceptible to attack is definitely a good way to proceed. Well, I think that's, that's really interesting. And it made me laugh because I pictured myself continually failing the test and being told I had to come back in. It's also interesting that you said that the people that pass you keep upping the ante to keep trying to fool them. And that, that's also very interesting. Um, Stephen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree. And we, to that point, like we, we talked about pharmacies being targeted um, for many of the same reasons. I always look at HR recruiting as one too, because they, you know, they're out there dealing with unknowns all the time and they're taking on resumes and that. Uh, so we do some some of that focus, but I feel strongly too that this is there's a marketing side to this from the standpoint of getting out and talking with people, going to department meetings, um, almost <laughs> like a political side of uh, 
talking with people and meeting them and giving them a chance to express their concerns and and just giving your opinions on it. Um, especially as a security leader, that's something we need to be doing uh, as part of awareness is, yeah, fishing, friendly fishing, as we call it, is good. All these things are good, but some of it just making yourself available and making people understand you care and you have a passion for this and that you need your you need their help. And that's how we approach it. And one thing I will say in healthcare, if you if you say I need your help, uh, that seems to resound quite well with them. Well, that's really interesting, Steve. That's uh, I think great advice. So your advice is for security leaders in hospitals, you have to be out there, you have to be in the departmental meetings, and it may just be to have your presence known as you're asking for their help and support, you're not there to sort of threaten anybody because right. that might be the perception. Oh my God, the CISO's here. He's going to scream yeah. at us, but no, it's, it's more of a, let's all work together. And this is important. That's right. That's good. Ryan, what are your thoughts about any thoughts on overdoing it? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure you can overdo it right now. Um, you know, to Steven's point, we convinced broadly a health system the need to wear masks the need to wear to put some controls in place before you let people into your health system it's not that dissimilar from a security cybersecurity sort of standpoint you have to also persuade them the need to to, to have, offer due diligence and to be you know to be look at all the email they received or interactions they have look at that very, very critically take a mask oriented sort of approach and I, I think, unfortunately, I do I do sense in the industry occasionally this this kind of this mindset of kind of like COVID. Well, it's not going to happen to me. It's not you know cyber. I'm not going to be attacked by a bad actor. I don't have anything to value. These are these people are heinous. They, they will they will stop at nothing to try to break into a health system, and they are equal opportunity attackers. They will go after anybody that they think can help them achieve their aims. And so their aims are often financial, but as the FBI alert came out recently around, around wanting to steal an intellectual property or wanting to steal patient data to go build up um, from, from a China sort of standpoint, we've seen that, uh, those, those bad actors. So whatever you have, all health systems have something valuable to the bad actors and they will try to get to it. So it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the masks and all that. Um, there's the supply chain folks who are more the business folks. Um, they're the, then they're the clinicians. Um, and it's interesting, we even call it computer viruses, right? So we're using clinical terms. We just happen to be dealing with, a, with healthcare now, but in other industries, they still use the term virus, but it works very well for this industry. Is there a difference in, a, in approach, Steve, for working with clinicians versus non-clinicians when it comes to security? Yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, I was just thinking uh, of a depart certain part department meeting I went to and we were talking about malicious software and how it spreads and how we have variants in that. And I, I, I believe it was an epidemiologist that came up to me afterwards and tried to engage me in the whole discussion of disease spread and things. Yeah, it quickly just escalated far beyond my, <laughs> my world, but boy, it hit home with him. He, and what he was saying amidst all the technical jargon that's part of his world, not mine, 
he got it. He fully got it. And so, yeah, I think just tying, you know, to that point, and I've actually said this, that, uh, you know, when we talk about malware spread, you know, I'll say to that type of audience, you're already far beyond me as understanding how this works. Mm -hmm. And they, like you said, they get it. They fully get it. Uh, In fact is, you know, maybe I need to bring one of them into my team and actually have them present on that topic. I had never really thought about that. Well, look, we're all coming up with ideas here. (laughs) Chris, do you see, uh, do you see a difference for dealing with um, clinical versus non-clinical folks when it comes to uh, security? It can be, but I think it's very important, as uh, Steve mentioned, is to really begin to understand the business, to actually learn what the clinical needs are, what the kind of roles the doctors play, what they do. I think you really need to understand the, the vertical uh, you work in. And being an educator is definitely a big part of being a CISO. And to kind of build on what he said is um, you have to kind of phrase your case in ways that the doctors are going to understand. So, for example, the doctors may not be interested in, you know, the specifics of a denial of service attack, but they really do understand the concept of availability. And they do understand how systems being available is critical to patient care and how any loss of availability of those systems can impact adversely patient care. So it's a matter of understanding their needs and kind of phrasing um, the security needs in kind of the same regard. So you can actually point out the fact that you actually have common goals, that the security is not there to make it harder for them to do their job, that it's there to promote patient safety. And this is how it goes about promoting patient safety. That's a great, great point. Ryan, what are are your thoughts on that? uh, Customizing the language, the analogies you're using to the constituency you're speaking with at any given time. You know, on this topic, I... One of the most troubling observations I've, I've come across uh, recently was we did some research and we had to go tell a segment of our customer base that the hospice department was the most, or like the third most attacked department in this health system. And there's a, a small number of health systems where we observed this. And that was troubling if you just, you know, if you appreciate the type of work that those people do oh. and, and how they throw their whole heart and soul into, into the, into helping that patient uh, have a good end of life. Um, but explain to them that they are still being attacked and, and you need to put that, that department through whatever your control is. I mean, whether it's training or technology, there are all sorts of controls you could use, but more importantly, explain to that health system that these people are heavily being heavily attacked by cyber criminals for whatever reason. I mean, we could, we don't talk to cyber criminals. We don't have coffee with them. So we don't, we don't know their motivations, I guess, in this instance, you know, their access to control substances or the patient record, but, but more important, more importantly, explaining to that, that department or that that those health systems that these people are under attack based on the data that we're seeing, it's a tough conversation because those people do. I mean, you know, they healthcare is a very noble industry, and that's amongst the most noble aspects of healthcare. And to think that even that's not out of bounds for cyber criminals, um, it's, it was that's a, a troubling part of, of the role and a tough conversation. But I think it's it's important. If you the data shows you this, that you've got to go have that tough conversation with the clinic clinicians 
and and explain to them the value of the data they hold uh, and why they, although they have to do, you know, maintain that, you know, that important patient safety engagement, but they have to keep their guard up too because they are also going to be under attack. All right, very good. Uh, next question, we're going to start with Chris on this. Many say fighting security threats requires a three-part approach, including technology, threat intelligence, and education. Do you agree? If so, how have you approached each of these? I think we covered a lot of technology and education. Let's Maybe we'll focus on threat intelligence. Chris, what are your thoughts? Sure, I definitely agree with the statement. And as you mentioned, we did talk heavily about um, technology and education again. I think one of the important things to consider in terms of the whole question is that um, at the end of the day, security is really not about technology in particular, as unfortunately some people still think it is. Technology is one facet of information security, but information security is at the end of the day about controlling risk. And technology is just one of the ways in which risk can be controlled. Um, education and other controls also have a big part to play in that. To get to the threat intelligence portion, since that hasn't been touched on yet, I do think threat intelligence is increasingly important. Um, one of the things is if you go to some of the dark web you know, boards that a lot of the hackers use and stuff like that, you can see that they share intelligence. They're, basic, they're constantly sharing, um, you know, this person has this vulnerability, this technique works to exploit that. So threat intelligence is being shared by our attackers. If we wanna stay on top of keeping ourselves protected, we as defenders need to begin to do the same thing. We need to keep in mind that we're all in this together, that any threat I'm seeing is likely gonna be seen by many other hospitals. And the more open we can become about the challenges we face and what we're doing to solve those challenges, I think the better off we all are going to be. Great point, Steve. Yeah, I agree with that. Threat intelligence through the years, from my perspective, has become more and more important. And it helps us tremendously because it, I will argue in today's world, if you're managing security with current threats, you're already in trouble. You need to know what's out ahead. And the way you do that is it's not a one point solution in my mind. It's a number one, maybe acquire a commercial uh, threat intel service, but also I think more critically is get engaged, especially if you're a security leader. Step outside the organization. There's all kinds of working groups, HISAC, for an example, and I could go on and on and name them. But there's all kinds of opportunities, both in the private and public sector of work groups getting together and trying to help solve problems and improve things. And that the beauty of that is if you get in those working groups, you expand your, your level of networking and you get to know people at other healthcare systems and you need and you get to know people in the government agencies and even in different industry segments. The more you can uh, expand your network and get involved daily the more you're on the inside about hearing on these threats and being able to get ahead of the curve, get your sort, your snort signatures and all the things in place before the wave actually comes. You know, Ryan, uh, hearing Steve makes me think that, you know, and I knew this, this is not a nine to five job. 
if you're going to be a security leader. This is you have to enjoy on your Saturday when you're sitting there reading a threat intel report. There's just not enough time in the day unless yep. you love this stuff. You enjoy reading it as much as a novel. Yeah, but I think building upon what was said, uh, I think this is where threat intel is actually really helpful because uh, it does. It, this is about managing risk in the end, and threat intel or threat insight is one of the guide points that can at least help you determine where the puck is moving to, and therefore what controls you could put in place. I, I've not met a health system on this planet who is rich with resources or budget, so. You're having to make trade-offs. You're having to place your security bets. And so one of the ways you make that security bets is, is understanding where the threat's going to occur. So if your institution is one of those organizations that has a hospice a part of it and that are being attacked, then at least you know that from a threat intel standpoint, and you can choose what is the right control. Same if that was for, for clinical research or the pharmacy function. So I, I think that's you know, that's threat insight is really, really important to go help figure out where you place your bets and which controls are best a best fit for each part of your organization. Yeah. And you said there's lots of uh, sources out there, Steve, there's, there's plenty. So I guess you, you have to pick the, the ones you want and uh, hopefully they give you sort of like the weather forecast, right? You talked about sunny and raining. They, they tell you what's going to happen so you can move your resources to combat it. Um, all right, let's go through this one. This could be interesting. Talk about the main security threats that are on your radar. And you pick the time frame. I have one to two years out, but you can make a time frame if something comes to mind. Chris, why don't you go first? Sure. For us, one of the big ones actually is the focus of this webinar, supply chain risks. That's uh, one of the things we're increasingly focusing heavy on is us trying to you know, sort out and mitigate all the risks that our vendors actually pose to us. Um, due to issues like the solar winds, COVID, and a lot of other recent events, that's becoming uh, one of the top things increasingly on my list. Uh, and I think the other is kind of the one that's constantly a threat for hospitals is ransomware and keeping up with the ever-evolving threat landscape for that. So th those would be my top two. And ransomware can come in through a supply chain risk, right? I mean, you talk about yes. supply, right? It, it's just a particular type of attack that can come in that way, correct? That is true. Ransomware can come in through many forms. And uh, that's one of the reasons I'm so big on zero trust approaches to security. I really like to take the approach that any device on my network could become compromised and have controls in place to um, treat it as if it you know, was compromised. So if it actually does become compromised, the damage it can do is already mitigated. And you're working, uh, is this a focus of yours to get your organization uh, into zero trust where your last organization was? It is, yes. Yeah. So I, I had done it previously at, at Interfaith, the last hospital I was at, and yeah. it's a current focus at uh, Mount Sinai as well to bring them to He's zero. A big trust. believer. He's a big believer in that, right? All right, uh, Steve. Well, it's two two parts. To this obviously ransomware. We're concerned about supply chain is you know very concerning to me, especially when you have time to actually think, sit down and think about it and start to grasp the the full breadth of it. I actually look at it two-part. I'm concerned about the security threats, but I'm also concerned about threat vectors and what's changing in the environment that makes things more, you know, what new threat vectors are being opened. For example, we're moving into cloud. Uh, we're 
we talked about supply chain as another one, but it's also, and it's part of the why I got into security to begin with, the fascination with it, is the old age way of thinking of what could go wrong and how could it happen. And that to me, when I say threat vector, that's what I'm thinking. How could somebody use this against us? And designing your security, again, to stay ahead of the curve uh, to ad address those threat vectors. So, uh, you know, I, I, if I, you know, I've been in security over 40 years. And if I, my guessing what the security threats are two years out, maybe in the early days, but now, you know, something like solar winds, I, would have never thought it would have gone to that extent. Uh, so again, yeah, think about the security threats now and what may be ahead, but equally important is thinking about ways things could be used against you that nobody's thought of. So the, Steve, the solar winds thing that, that uh, to you was a next level or something new uh, that, that gave you new concerns that were not there before? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, I, I look back and reflect on the target compromise. And that was sort of the whole concept of supply chain. This was a service entity that enabled the attack on target, as I understand it. But I had I'd thought about supply chain security, but the whole concept of the depth, the possibilities. For example, someone that is thinks they're fine, a vendor that thinks their systems are fine, only to find out that one of their suppliers, three layers down, inserted something that they were not aware of, or maybe not even you know where it was really integrated in their product. And so when you think about that and, and you're trusting your vendors, you have a good relationship and you still run into this problem, uh, that's a little bit disconcerting. How, how are we gonna deal with that in the future Be as we have become so integrated with our supply chains across the board? In my mind, when you really sit down and think about that, that can be quite mind boggling. Ryan, what are your thoughts? Well, in terms of security threats, uh, I don't want to be boring about this, but basically Verizon, Ponymon, Hims have been saying the same thing for a while now. Initial point of compromise is almost always on email. And until we solve that, I don't think that's going to change. So it's hard to look out two years from now, but in, email is how people are being attacked. That I suspect will continue to be the problem. I mean, we're going to move to the cloud. The cloud is going to be the next area where of, of significant attack. So, you know, whether it's it's whether that happens in the next two years, I mean, it's happening now already, of course. But, you know, I think solving for email is still the number one challenge. Um, I think the HIMSS data in December said 89% of all attacks start with our initial point of compromise is on email. Like, that's a pretty good pointer about what's happening. And I think, you know, Verizon, Ponymon, the other research firms essentially tell the same story. So I'd focus there first. 
All right. I want to read one comment from one of our uh, CIO attendees. Uh, great discussion and agree with the comprehensive approach because each of the areas of protection are not bulletproof. Example, we train and test on phishing, but ultimately someone will click on what they should not. But then the event logging and monitoring is critically important to be strong in a 24-7, 365 without fail. So a lot going on there. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, and I want to thank everybody. Uh, what a great session. Uh, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. Um, you'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel. Excellent discussion today. Steve Dunkel, Chris Friends, and Ryan Witt. And I want to thank Proofpoint for making this discussion possible. And I want to thank you for attending. With that, everybody, have a wonderful day. Thank you.